Hey everyone, my name is Maggie Chang. And I'm Elena Cho. And welcome to Gourmand, a show set on empowering the next generation of food lovers and leaders. On today's show, we're sitting down with Jeff Miller and Yoni Lang, the duo behind Rosella, a new sushi spot in New York City's East Village. Together, they're working actively to reduce their carbon footprint by sourcing locally, using sustainably caught fish, and minimizing food waste. Welcome to Gourmand, Jeff and Yoni. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Cool. So we just wanted to start off with learning a little bit more about your guys' backgrounds. Can you guys tell us like what your childhood was like and like how food came into play? Yeah, I guess I'll go first. Uh, I'll jump. I'll jump in, Jeff. <laughs> uh, I, from Louisiana originally, uh, born and raised there on a military base. Not raised, but uh, raised in Baton Rouge. Um, my mother definitely was my biggest food influence, like most chefs that I've you know met and talked to about this. She came from a, a Spanish household in the Bay Area, in San Francisco. Uh, grew up making tortillas on the weekends with the family and chili verde days and all this very um, delicious, hearty Spanish food. And whenever she moved to Louisiana, she very much brought uh, not only that with her, but also uh, really did a lot to kind of dig deep in Louisiana culture and give that to me and my brother and really get us to appreciate everything around us, but also where we came from. And uh, so the inspiration for food for us is really kind of just a huge melting pot of, you know, our influences from our parents um, and just where we've been. You know, Louisiana has a pretty intense food scene, uh, very strong flavors, and that's definitely something uh, we like to bring to the food that we do at Rosella. Uh, I guess it's my turn now, isn't it? I guess it is. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm Jeff Miller. I grew up in Grass Valley, California, um, which is in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. Beautiful small town. I didn't I didn't realize at the time because you know I'm, I was there, but my my perception of my childhood after having left California for a long time is that it was very um, it was very Northern California. I went to a very alternative school growing up. We were in touch with nature. It was huge emphasis. Uh, I went to Waldorf school from kindergarten through seventh grade. Um, and nature was a, a major part of, uh, of that, of my upbringing, not just because of school, but in terms of, in terms of my, my childhood, that's a, a huge thing that sticks out. And, um, I don't know to what degree that influenced what we're doing now, but I think having met people who didn't have the same sorts of uh, schooling at that age, uh, I do think that there is some some part that that played in the way that I see our connection with the world. Um, yeah, that's so cool. I mean, I went to a very different kind of high school as well. I was in, also in California on 3,000 acres of wilderness. We like lived in cabins. We grew all our own food, chopped wood for warm showers. So, yeah. Um, so we kind of touched on this before, but Jeff, you said you studied journalism in college and um, Yoni like dropped out and went 
and did bicycles. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you guys eventually got into like cooking? So I was racing bicycles probably 12, 11 or 12 years old was when I really got into it. And I think that was, I've kind of gone through bits of phases in my life where I find something that I become quite obsessed with and really go as deep down the rabbit hole as I can go. Music being the first one, uh, almost went to school for music. And somewhere in there, I just found my love for cycling. I don't know if it was it, not so much the creative aspect, because there's not so much creativity that goes into uh, strategy and racing bicycles. But I do think it was maybe more of the mental aspect of uh, me being maybe a touch introverted, enjoyed one, being in nature, and, and two, it allowed me to really kind of free my mind, so to speak, and and just be on my own and kind of confront my own problems uh, or anything I was dealing with. And gave me a lot of time to think. And, and the further you go down this path of uh, being an athlete, you know, you, you kind of have to come to a, a point where you decide you're going to continue going down this path and pursue, uh, you know, sports or, <laughs> or do something else. And, you know, that, that career doesn't last very long. And I'd been doing it for 12 years full time at that point, you know, waking up and weighing my, my food, weighing my orange juice, uh, eating, you know, 8,000 calories a day to just make up for what I'd, you know, lost. And 12 years of that at that age, definitely, uh, it was a lot, but I do think it prepared, prepared me very well for kitchens. Cause at that point in time, I was, um, I had loved sushi for some reason. I, I was fascinated with sushi. I loved how simple it seemed yet how difficult something so simple could be really was. And I really was drawn to that simplicity or at least, uh, this illusory of simplicity and got a side job and was training full time still and a little sushi restaurant opened up right down the street and I went in there and begged for a job just begged to let them allow me to work there and just learn and never been turned away more times in my life than from this spot and no you don't have experience do you have knife skills no uh, I can hold a knife is that not enough uh and just completely over and over turned down. Uh, it's, it's funny. When, when you don't have knife skills, you don't realize what knife skills are. Yeah, really exactly. Uh, finally, uh, the bar manager said, you know, we need a bar back. Uh, just come, come work behind the bar. So cool. I took that job and saw that as a way to get my foot in the door. Uh, and then the rest is kind of history. I ended up racing still for a couple years. Uh, working as a bar back and then working for free behind the sushi bar. Uh, once I finally told the sushi chefs that I'm, I was willing to work for free, they're like, oh, no problem. Yeah, absolutely. You come and work for us. Um, so that, that was kind of the beginning of, of this, this journey down the, the food rabbit hole. And then it got to a point where I knew I would either have to jump off one end or the other, uh, sports or food. And 
food seemed uh, the longevity in, in the food industry <laughs> at the time seemed seemed like a great idea. Uh, at least maybe longer than than the sports career would have been. But um, fell in love with it and really never never looked back. Uh, there is something to be said though for having having so many. Uh, I don't want to call them. Like, uh, hobbies but being passionate about you know so many different things can definitely uh lead you down an interesting road <laughs> in life so and do you still cycle now i know uh i do have a wonderful lovely bike from my racing days it's very expensive and is i'm looking at it right now it's upside down <laughs> looking very sad and um I live so close to the restaurant. I just walk to the restaurant every day. I think, so I've, I think the only the only bikes Yoni's ridden since he came to New York are city bikes, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, mostly, yeah, yeah. So it's I, I would love to, but um, it, it it's so time consuming. And uh, if when, when our restaurant, ideally, if we can get to a point where I get a little free time, I'll definitely be riding. Yeah, yeah, that, that's definitely gonna happen. It's <laughs> definitely gonna happen one day. We'll see. How about you, Jeff? Um, well, I was I was very much on on the path to become a writer. Um, I'd still love to write in some capacity again. Um, I I I started writing for newspapers when I was seventeen, um, and then went to then went to the University of Florida. Uh, which just so happens to be the finest school in the world. Um, and their journalism school is top notch. And I, I really, I, I love newspapers. I love writing. Um, but I needed a job to get through college. And like Yoni had fallen in love with sushi years, years prior. So the, the first place I went, I, I, I had just moved to Gainesville in Florida and I, I printed 20 resumes. I was prepared to go all over town. Uh, the first place I went was a sushi restaurant that I had heard about. I had no no business walking into a sushi restaurant asking for a job, but I also I also didn't realize that I had no business walking into a sushi restaurant asking for a job. So it made it made it much easier. Um, the first place I went was this restaurant called Dragonfly, and it just so happened that on this on this particular day, the um, the chef was expecting a friend of one of the owners to be stopping by looking for a job. And he thought that I was a friend of the owner, <laughs> hired me on the spot. And um, I was like, wow, really easy to get a job in Gainesville. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I got it. It was, it was a very, very difficult transition. Was, there was so much to learn. Um, but loved the work, especially in contrast with, with journalism, which as much as I love it in journalism, you're, you are writing about what other people are doing. And it, it, it was very fulfilling to be doing something myself, like creating something with my hands. Um, and there's also something very addictive about work in which the moment you get better, you actually see that you see the tangible, there are tangible results to your improvement. Um, and I had the, the very good luck of having some good teachers there. And um, yeah, in, in, in a couple of years of, 
when I started there, I didn't expect it to become a career. I just thought it was going to be how I got through school. But, you know, a couple of years into it, I, I started to realize that it, it, I might be veering off course. Got it. And then how did you two meet? We met in 2013 in Austin at a restaurant called Uchiko. We both sought it out for, um, for the head sushi chef, a small, talented man named Masa Amaya, who worked us like crazy and taught us so much. Um, but we had both separately sought out the same chef. So kind of turning, I guess, to Rosella, I'd love to hear the story behind the restaurant and where you guys were at when you decided that that was what you wanted to do. Man, where, where were we, Jeff, when we decided to, to open Rosella? Well, we were in Texas, and then we were in California, <laughs> and then we were in New York. The, the conversations around opening a restaurant together um, have spanned years. Um, it just took, it took until getting to the right spot and having acquired enough, enough knowledge to feel a little more confident um, and having, having an investor and all, all, having all those things line up. You just continue to go down this, this journey of, all right, do you think we're ready yet kind of thing? Um, you're never ready, but we tried to put a plan into place to where we would approach that start line as ready as possible. What we essentially did was Jeff focused primarily on fish, the sustainable aspect of it, educating himself on everything local, everything from farming techniques, fishing techniques, all of that that he could for years and years, he's been doing that um, with a, a goal of really focusing on that. And I branched off and went more down the fermentation, pre preservation, essentially, uh, cooking, gardening, all these things that we can essentially bring back into the fold together and we wouldn't be you know doing the same thing and, and moving along at a snail's pace we wanted to we really wanted to set out a, a plan and having that you know one year two year three or five year plan is is so important if you can put it into action and we did and, and it was great you know it was looking back on it if i probably would do it again it's <laughs> it's a lot but you know, now that we're here, it's, it's extremely fulfilling and uh, to see that kind of plan come to fruition and to see it work out and to see how, how really just how much knowledge Jeff just on how much fish, different species he's used. I mean, you, how many species does you use when you're at Mayanoki? When I was at Mayanoki, which is where, uh, so our, our third partner is TJ Provenzano. Uh, TJ was the um, the managing partner at Mayanoki, um, not far from where Rosella is, but that's where that's where we met. And at that restaurant, I used ninety one unique ninety one unique species of seafood, um, which was uh, it was a crash course. Um, but so I was out to to actually answer your question. I was. I was already up in, here in New York. Yoni was still in, in Texas. TJ was also in New York. He's a New Yorker. Um, when we decided to open a restaurant, uh, it started out as let's open um, an ongoing pop-up 
series because we didn't have a space. Um, and it was the first or second night of doing pop-ups when, uh, when we realized like this is, this isn't going to work. Um, so we, we opened, we opened Rosella in October. We, we signed the lease on the space in probably like January or February of 2020. Um, it was, I think it was, it was August of, it was August of 2019 when we were, when we actually started, when we, when we started making the decisions to open something together. Yeah. And was that focus on sustainability as kind of a core goal there from the start? Yeah. Yes. Um, I, for all of us, for uh, T, TJ has a, an extensive, he's, he's been in the New York wine world for years. Um, and he's, he's focused in the same way that we focus on local seafood. He focuses on local wines. And um, so he, uh, he incorporates that, that mindset uh, into our, into our restaurant through, through the, through beverages. Um, Yoni and I, we don't, it's not that we shy away from it at all. We don't like to play up the sustainability side of things. Um, primarily just because we're, it's, it's so ingrained in us now that there's, there's no, there's no other option. Um, we're, we're primarily interested in running restaurants and, and providing people with a good time and good food. Um, but it, it's important to, it's important to bring up sustainability because it, it's not, what everyone does it's not it's not assumed in other restaurants the way that it's assumed for us especially in sushi hmm. did the restaurants that you worked at before have this focus on sustainability or how did you guys want to go about like running this restaurant and making sure it's a sustainable restaurant no the restaurants where we came up had no interest in sustainability um it wasn't like they were actively <laughs> They weren't pursuing endangered species, especially in sushi. The sushi is such a big business here and around the world now that there is this sushi infrastructure. There's this own sushi economy that exists. Um, and it, if you have the skills, it's not hard to open a restaurant um, and get tasty, good fish in from by using this this infrastructure that already exists um if yoni and i could could have made our lives much easier if we just opened a restaurant and served farmed uh farmed yellowtail farmed salmon uh ranched bluefin tuna um that stuff is easy to get year round it's relatively cheap um and those those i list those three because those are the three by far the three most popular fish that you'll find at any sushi restaurant all three are um unsustainable in various ways um whether it's uh, because i mentioned three farmed fish there 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 are good ways to farm and bad ways to farm um most salmon is farmed uh, as most yellowtail hamachi is farmed in a way that pollutes the waters around it um um, yeah. so what we're doing at Rosella, it, it, it's, it's easy for us now, but it takes a lot more thought and trial and error, um, upfront. So that, that period of time over a couple of years at Mayanoki during which I used 91 species, um, 
it was fun. And I think, I think we made some good food there. I will say our food is much better at Rosella. Yeah. And I feel like sometimes having those built-in constraints that you're working with mean that you have to be more creative. And I can imagine that, like, has that come into play in determining the menus and coming up with the food? Oh man, it, yeah. Forced creativity is, is, yeah. yeah. I'll let, I'll let Yoni answer this because he's, he's been taking the lead more as our, like, R&D guy, but forced creativity is the way to go. Yeah, that is absolutely the best way to, yeah, I guess forced is a, a pretty good way to put it. I, I was speaking with someone else about this recently, about creating this library of, of components and ingredients uh, throughout the seasons, preserving stuff uh, in the summer and using it in the winter. I think there was a, an article that someone put out when we first opened that misstated that we were preserving out of season fruits and vegetables and then serving them when they're in season or, or something along those lines and <laughs> seeing people's comments on that it was like why are you giving these guys attention they're preserving out of season product but the point and the correct uh, the correction being preserving something that's in season for example we utilize strawberries a lot on our menu this season uh the strawberries here are absolutely incredible. So I wanted to preserve as many of them as I could to use them throughout winter. And that's definitely, you know, you can do something with a little bit of everything from that strawberry. You know, we, we would take the actual strawberries and pickle them. And uh, with the tops that we would cut off, including the, the green tops, uh, the stems, you want all of that yeast, the natural yeast in the air, and then we made a strawberry top vinegar out of that. And then you can reuse that to pickle so many other things uh, this season. So having a library of your own preser you know, preserves is really good for the creative side um, and so much better than sitting down like so many restaurants before me have in the past where you sit down with these product lists that are from all over the world and you can get every single fruit and every single vegetable at any time of the year, anything you want. And while, yeah, it's great. You go in and you just click things and it just shows up at your back door. That's great. But you got to think of what, what the bigger picture of what that's doing. And so putting ourselves in a position, okay, it's, it's winter. Uh, what are we going to make? Are we going to sit down with product lists and, and pick anything and everything that we could possibly imagine or is it smarter to sit down and go okay well we have pickled strawberries uh raw almonds um and uh you know you pick a pick a fish that's in season a bluefish and we have a honeydew vinegar all right cool let's create a dish with those so the it becomes much more streamlined when you can go in and pick components out that are already ready you know the flavor profiles and it really it really does show how important time is as an ingredient um and that you can time is so important with what we're doing with a lot of these products and that you know allows us to it's very it's fun doing that you know we could be proud serving stuff like that and you know you are forced into a bit of a corner you know you're not you can't just get citrus all the time you can't get you know, we're, we're in a root vegetable season right now. It's potatoes and radishes and turnips and, uh, 
it really does force you into a bit of a corner to have to think a little bit harder about what you're putting on a plate. But if anything, you know, we this was was probably the most exciting thing that we were talking about, or at least for me, I remember being in Dallas during quarantine, talking on the phone with Jeff every day. Like, All right, let's create, you know, a full Metro rack of dried herbs and pickled this and fermented this and vinegars. And, and, you know, we're slowly getting there and it, it, um, it just makes creating so much more fun and less stressful because, you know, dealing with the other day-to-day stuff and, creating don't always go in tandem very well yeah yeah um and then kind of starting to wrap up um we wanted to ask each of you what you if you had to give advice to students or um aspiring people who want to be sushi chefs or restaurant owners what would you tell them be patient um and you know don't don't quit uh, surround yourself with good people has been what's most important for me, having a, a strong team. And, you know, since since dining can be such an emotional experience, um, as you all know, for example, you know, it can be playful, personal, or serious, uh, laid back, or exciting. There's I like to think that we tick a little bit of each of those boxes off. And when you can, when you can put yourself in a position to have fun with your food, um, it's not an easy road to get to, but surrounding yourself with people who want to learn uh, is the easiest way to get there. Uh, our, our very small team at Rosella makes it so easy to get through the day and through the years of working with Jeff, having someone that you can also be a bit competitive with in a healthy way is, has been extremely beneficial. And it's almost, you know, we, we just constantly go back and forth with ideas and, you know, we being open to feedback and criticism and allowing yourselves to be more open with each other like that, uh, not only just creates a stronger team, but it kind of makes, makes it more fulfilling and makes that day-to-day stress especially now being in a pandemic where every day is a problem solving day you come in every day having to figure out a hundred different new new things um so surrounding yourself with good people can never be undervalued in my opinion that's good yeah i like that thank thank you very much (laughs) (laughs) what what has worked well for me the more I practice it is um, listening patiently until I truly understand what what I'm being told, absorb the information, um, learn as much as you can from from everyone around you, and and then apply your own judgment when you're putting that information into practice. For us, that's how how we've grown to this point. If we if we uh, especially in, in sushi, which is rooted in Japanese culture, tradition is valued so highly. We, we now, having our own business, have the luxury of being able to apply what we've learned by, by picking and choosing the things that we want to keep and getting rid of the things that we don't 
and adding the things that that we do that uh, in in other at other times in other restaurants we wouldn't have been permitted to. Um, but the the beauty that comes from learning as much as as you can from other people and then adding yourself to that, um, I think that's how you create something unique and good. Yeah, no, I love that. I love both those pieces of advice. So wrapping up our last segment that we like to do is what we call the quick fire tasting menu. It's just kind of a rapid style, five questions, say the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, the first one is, what is one kitchen tool you can't live without? Knife. <laughs> For us, at least. Uh, very knife heavy. Rice cooker. What's your favorite midnight snack or late night restaurant? Ben and Jerry's. Cheez-Its. <laughs> Which flavor, though? Oh, man, the flavor that I desire the most is not made anymore in classic Ben and Jerry's fashion. It was, uh, my girlfriend would hate this answer, but is they had a dark chocolate with, um, like, the Thin Mint Girl Scout cookies, but they're a little ball Thin Mints with fudge swirl. Whew. Mud on. Perfection. And Cheez-Its, of course. Cheez-Its. <laughs> Cheez-Its, uh, if you can get your hands on uh, extra toasted Cheez-Its. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Those are the best ones. <laughs> it's got to be the toasted ones. Um, what are each of your favorite dishes at Rosella right now? Ooh, Yoni. Yoni, guess mine. Mm, the ramen? The laksa. The laksa. It's the laksa. laksa. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be the laksa. laksa. Yeah. Uh, I like, I would say the, the EXO and tomatillos right now with the crispy rice is probably my, my favorite on the menu. I do eat a bowl of ramen every day, though. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What's a must-have in your guys' fridge? Ooh, Kewpie mayo. I think uh, I don't think any fridge is complete without a a little a little bottle of Kewpie mayo and Tabasco, perhaps. (laughs) This I don't drink a lot of soda, but I love having. uh, You can get these tiny, like I think they're eight ounce, six ounce, or eight ounce cans of Coke. There's something. (laughs) <laughs> there's something about getting like at like 2 a.m getting that I, I don't even like finish them half the time i just need like four ounces of coke getting that that bubbly crispness it's like the yeah and the last question is uh what is a chef that you'd want to give a shout out to who's doing something cool right now i actually don't know what he's doing right now because his restaurant is closed but um Diego Moya is he's a friend he's a he's also my favorite chef in New York uh he was well I guess he's still technically the chef at Racine's in in Tribeca but um they're they're closed for the time being um so he's he's just fiddling around in the Upper East Side but um his his style he, he has years of experience in New York from a lot of fine dining restaurants um, all, all sorts of different restaurants, but the way he's integrated everything that he knows technique, um, and, and flavors and, and created a very simple style. That's the most unpretentious, but beautiful, uh, style that I, that I know of in among chefs. Um, uh, he's also his, what seems to be his, his, true love in food is veggies and what he does with vegetables is um i've I've never encountered anything like it i I knew jeff was gonna say was gonna say diego 
Diego is doing some incredible stuff. Uh, my, if I would pick, I would have to say my, who's also happens to be one of my friends, Alan Delgado, who's the chef over at Oshamoko in Brooklyn, um, or not their chef, but kind of their head of R&D and uh, culinary um, head over there. He actually moved from Austin, Texas. We met there and uh, he's taught me a lot throughout the years and we've stayed in touch and we actually moved here uh, the same month. I was, I was moving up here in June and, you know, like most places you move to a new spot, you know, you always would like to have some more friends there. And he <laughs> messaged me like a week before I was like, I'm moving to New York. And he's been doing amazing stuff over there. His food always looks good. He ran some amazing spots in Austin. Uh, one in particular called Counter 357 that I've had one of my favorite meals at. Um, primarily focused on lots of Mexican cuisine, making uh, own tortillas, dealing with a lot of masa and moles. Uh, just exciting food. And he, he seems to be able to just whip up amazing food just on on uh just out of nowhere so amazing stuff really great got to very cool well we'll have to check them out and our listeners should too but it was so nice to chat with you both thank you so much for taking the time to be on our podcast um and yeah just loved hearing all about both of your stories and rosella and um that advice at the end was great too awesome well, it was great thank you very here. much yeah we appreciate y'all I, I appreciate it even more than Yoni. <laughs> That's a wrap on today's episode with Jeff Miller and Yoni Lang from Rosella. You can keep up with Rosella on Instagram at Rosella Sushi. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Elena Cho. And I'm Maggie Tang. And this is Gourmand.